0: So I was talking to a friend a few days ago, and I was telling her about this episode I was writing and how it was about Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish. And she asked me, what's it about? And I had been totally engrossed in this book for days, and obviously I knew what it was about, but I found it really difficult to articulate in a few words to her what Foucault was getting at. I ended up giving this uh, long-winded, meandering diatribe about changes in the penal system and individualism and knowledge power, and I didn't feel like I was doing a very good job. So I went back to the notes I'd been taking, and I really tried to find this uh, central theme to build the discussion around. And the one I came up with was normalcy. And then I went and I wrote the whole script, and I only actually ended up talking about normalcy like once or twice um basically i still can't really answer that question um in one or two sentences or with one or two words um luckily if you're listening to this podcast right now you've already signed up for the long explanation so i say we just get right into that hope you all enjoy this is we read theory And welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Mark. And I'm Alex. And today we're going to talk about criminality, deviance, and means of control. Do you want to share with the class
1: what, um, what you've done in quarantine so far and why our logo is now inextricably more accurate?
0: Are you talking, <laughs> about, are you talking about what I've done to my face?
1: Yes, your beautiful face, Mark.
0: Yeah, you've you've actually um posted pictures of my face on the Twitter already. So um people already know me as as beard man, but uh that that era has now come to a close and we're entering a new era where I'm somehow younger, at least uh according to how people perceive me than I was in the era that came before. So
1: actually it's been a big ruse the whole time and you're just wearing um a facial toupee as as a disguise, and now I'm you can. Like,
0: yeah, I'm like all those kids hanging out with Fidel Castro when he like visited the United States, and they're all wearing fake Fidel beards.
1: That's beautiful. I wish I could grow a beard. My I, I have a lot of good genes for a lot of a lot of good things, but facial hair growth is not one I was blessed with, unfortunately.
0: Have you um, ever heard of or read any like Michel Foucault before this uh, episode kind of came up in our uh, queue? Yeah, no,
1: like um, when we started this podcast, I was basically illiterate. So just how far I've come now is um, a real, real championing. I'm so sorry.
0: All right. Well, let's um, let's talk about a little discipline and punish. As long as there's been society and states, there have been means by which the state uses physical violence to exert control over the population. In a time period from the 16th to the 18th-ish, 19th-ish centuries, which Foucault confusingly refers to as the classical era, uh, there was a fundamental shift in how these methods worked and what they were trying to do. This this is really... Um, inextricable from the French Revolution. Really, the era of change that he's talking about is the things that kind of led up to the French Revolution, happened during it, and then kind of continued to happen in an era of reform throughout like the 19th century and what followed the French Revolution. So uh, keep in mind that's kind of the time period that we're talking about when we talk about the classical era and then the reform era that followed. Part one of Discipline and Punish is entitled Torture. And Foucault begins it with a gruesome description of one of the last great public executions, that of Damien the Regicide in 1757. Those of you who listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History may be familiar with this execution. I won't get into the violent details, but suffice to say that the process was very long and very painful for Damien, and culminated in, of course, his death. What Foucault was interested in, and what we are therefore interested in, is what this execution is doing on a social level. Laws exist ideally to enforce the social good, and crimes are bad because they damage the social good. But in an absolute monarchy, which is what you have in France in 1757, laws are also the direct will of the king. Criminality is therefore also an injury to the king himself and a challenge to his power. The excess the spectacle of the public execution is where the king takes his revenge on the criminal by inflicting pain on his body, but also where he reasserts the absoluteness of his power to the viewing public.
1: What would you give an example of as like a crime against the king? Cause like if I murdered my neighbor, that's kind of a crime against my neighbor, not against uh, Donald Trump necessarily.
0: Well, you have to consider that the law is the word and the will of the king. So even if, even if, you know, let's, if I'm in a position of authority and I tell you not to do something and then you do it, even if it doesn't directly hurt me personally, it's still an affront to my authority because authority is something that's supposed to be, you know, on its own terms, at least taken without question.
1: So if you have like an explicitly Christian Minecraft server and I was to go on there and start swearing, that would just be a complete affront to you. And yeah, therefore- I would- Deserving a very public and painful public execution.
0: I would have to draw and quarter you and then burn the remains in Minecraft. Kinky. Um, where was <laughs> I? <laughs> so, um, Now, not all or even most legal punishment in the classical era. Remember, we're talking about the era of, you know, the two centuries or so that preceded the French Revolution. Um, not all of the legal punishment or even most of it was capital. Banishment was a much more common form of punishment in France at the time, but a nearly universal aspect of the legal process was torture. And torture wasn't just a punishment, it was also part of the investigation too. To quote Foucault directly, the search for truth through judicial torture was certainly a way of obtaining evidence, the most serious of all, the confession of the guilty person, but it was also the battle and this victory of one adversary over the other that produced truth according to a ritual. In torture, employed to extract a confession, there was an element of the investigation. There was also an element of the duel. End quote. Power, for Foucault, is inextricable from the right to construct truth. The torturer wields the power of the king in a battle with the accused, and the victory reinforces the king's right to both knowledge and power. Somewhat paradoxically, though, this era of excessive punishment and absolute power is likewise marked by a general criminality amongst the population. People would break the laws and often get away with it, or their punishment would be a social one enforced by their community. The enforcement of the laws was actually quite inconsistent, and this is actually what necessitated the spectacular show of power when people did get punished in the first place. But this isn't a book about how absolute monarchs maintain their power, so what changed? Well, you have the revolution, the French one, and socialists and liberals view the revolution in pretty different ways. Where liberals might see the French revolution as ultimately a triumph of liberty of the, over the tyranny of kings with some regrettable bumps along the way, socialists will generally view it as the usurpation of kings and feudal rights uh, by the bourgeoisie and capital. With this shift, there's a parallel shift in the nature of crime from violations of rights to violations of property. This necessitated some changes, not just in the how of punishment, but also in the why. A painful punishment reasserts the king's power, but it doesn't pay for lost property. It doesn't produce the capital that could have been accumulated in the absence of the crime. It was necessary now to prevent crime and to attack it at the source. And to this end, The great reformers of the revolutionary era had some ideas, and pretty lofty ones at that. They envisaged this system in which punishment was public, but not spectacular. Punishment should be more humane and fit the crime, so that even the thought of a crime immediately brought forth the thought of the corresponding punishment. To quote Foucault once again. Oh, wait, did you have something you want to say?
1: Yeah, so um, why did it have to be public in that case? So to idea, people?
0: Yeah, yeah, so basically, I'm actually literally just about to uh explain that right in the quote. Uh but the idea is um that if people are always seeing if everywhere you go, you're seeing people being punished in ways that fit their crime and you see it very publicly, then it's impossible for you to think stealing without thinking hard labor.
1: Okay. So just Pavlovian response to just not doing it, it,
0: it it's very Pavlovian, exactly. So to quote Foucault directly. This, then, is how one must imagine the punitive city. At the crossroads, at the gardens, at the side of roads being repaired or bridges built, in workshops open to all, in the depths of the mines that may be visited, will be hundreds of tiny theaters of punishment. Each crime will have its law, each criminal his punishment. It will be a visible punishment, a punishment that tells all, that explains, justifies itself. Convicts, placards, Different colored caps bearing inscriptions, posters, symbols, texts read or printed, tirelessly repeat the code. The essential point in all these real or magnified severities is that they should all, according to a strict economy, teach a lesson. That each punishment should be a fable and that in a counterpoint with all the direct examples of virtue, one may at each moment encounter as a living spectacle the misfortunes of vice. So it's kind of a long-winded way of saying what I basically just said to (laughs) you a second ago. Got it. So you also may have noticed during my reading of that last quote that that's not how we do criminal justice. That's not what our justice system looks like at all. Not in France, certainly not here in the U.S. When someone is punished for a crime today and the crime is bad enough that a fine is insufficient, they go to prison. And this happens for the simple reason that detaining people... Is a prerequisite for enacting the myriad other punishments. There's a great irony in that, in effort to specify and fit punishments to crimes, uh, only manage to elevate detention as a single and universal punishment to everything. And and what I mean by that specifically is is that they have all these ideas that you know thieves are lazy, they don't want to work, and so they steal instead. And so their punishment is hard labor, or like. If you commit a violent crime, then you should actually have some kind of pain as a part of your punishment. But all these things require you to detain people in the first place.
1: Yeah, and that it's, it's manifested itself today in um, uh, sales of bonds and bond salesmen. Um, you know, how how like, so do you mean? I mean, regardless of the crime you commit, you will be required, if you're lucky, to post bond.
0: You're talking post, about to, bail.
1: I'm so fucking tired.
0: It's
1: okay. It's okay. So I'm just going to start the whole thing over. So no, 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 that no, no, manifests, Keep going. No, you're right. It manifests itself in, in different ways now where capital is um, a, a crucial part of every sentencing or trial process. You know, if you, say, say you're um, a, a minimum wage worker. You're not, you don't exactly have a giant savings account, right? So you're going to be required to post bail. When when you're when you're arrested for a crime, correct, and even though say it was uh, drug trafficking or something, or is a non-violent crime, or it, it was non-theft related, it still all revolves around capital and things like that. Regardless, it doesn't fit at all.
0: Yeah, and bail, and of course, just any punishment where a fine is the punishment. Like like if if a crime is punished by a fine, then that's really just a price for breaking the law. In the same way that Bail is just a price for getting out of jail while you await your trial.
1: I guess it could be argued that it's kind of like you're paying for the time of the public servants and by public servants, I mean, you know, police officers, courts, you're paying for that time and like paying reparations, I guess, but it's often not correlated and... I'd say that's that's a pretty weak argument, but one that yeah it
0: would go against the idea that um like if that's a societal level thing, then it would go against the idea that most of these people have that because society is this big complicated thing that like assigning the need to pay like the defend like the a public defender and like the cops that arrested you to the person that committed the crime is like not a very like social thing to do in the first place it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, yeah, but it makes right. a lot of sense if you want to. If you want to gear society towards people who own the means of production, which is of course exactly what is the point. So before we can go any further, we need to talk about discipline. Discipline is defined by Foucault as the political anatomy of detail. And what he means by that is that while political power had been used to control bodies for millennia, the emergence of disciplinary systems marks a significant increase in the scope of the control to illustrate the difference let's consider two armies the first is your regular medieval army the commander has control of their actions he can command them to assemble in formations march in a direction raise their weapons he can tell them to do all kinds of things but compare this army to the prussian army of the 18th century frederick the great can command his army to do all the same things but there's a difference When they march, they march in lockstep, left, then right, then left, then right, and each step is precisely the same length. When he orders them to raise their guns, the guns are raised with the same series of precise motions, nearly simultaneously, you know, reach out, take the gun, do this thing with them. It's all very, very precise, almost robotic. And the change we just illustrated in military structure is the same change that occurred in the penal structure at the end of the classical era. Punishment spaces became disciplinary spaces, and the degree of control they held over bodies became more minute and specific. How does this work? A disciplinary space does a few things. It distributes its space very specifically. Spaces are assigned uses, a space for sleeping, a space for eating, a space for working, and likewise individuals are assigned spaces. You sleep here, you eat here, you work here, and time is distributed the same way. You sleep now. You eat now. And in a truly disciplinary space, every second of the day is divided like this. But discipline is the political anatomy of detail, so the level of detail is always as minute as possible. Rather than ordering a prisoner to break rocks, you tell him how many rocks he is to break in a period of time. You force him to use a specific tool and swing it in just such a way. The goal is twofold. On the one hand, you turn sections of the body into parts and the whole body into a machine. On the other hand, the body becomes a part and the group of bodies becomes a machine. If you're familiar with Adam Smith, then this might be familiar to you. When Smith talks about a factory producing pins, he gives us two possibilities. You could, take, uh, you could tell ten men to make pins and they may altogether make a thousand in a day. However, you could organize them. Tell this man to go there and do this specific task. Tell that man to go there and do another task. In this way, you might get 10,000 pins with the same number of workers. If you're paying attention, the relationship between discipline and capital should be apparent already. But let's not get ahead of ourselves.
1: So the goal here is just to diminish autonomy in any sort of expression, personal expression a, you
0: may have? In a sense, yes. On the, on the one hand, um, it's a way of expressing more more complete and like perfect control over someone but there are also obvious um there are also obvious advantages to the capital owning class to organizing society in such a way where you can basically turn people into a machine the
1: u.s prison system (laughs) has legalized slavery
0: i'm sorry nothing go on so we've established that discipline divides time and space as precisely as possible We know that it breaks a single command into many smaller commands, and we know that when done right, it can make human bodies more effective at whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. But how do we get here? In order to enforce such a degree of control, you can't just punish people for doing something wrong. You have to punish them for not doing it right enough. This is where that idea of normalcy comes in. There can be no acceptable range of behavior. There can only be a point of perfection of normalcy, and all deviations from it must be punished to different degrees based on just how far they deviate. This unprecedented level of control naturally required an unprecedented amount of knowledge, obviously. You can't punish two prisoners differently if you don't know the exact details of their infractions. And this is where we arrive at the panopticon. Do you know, do you, are you familiar with the idea of the uh, Panopticon? I am not. I was just going to ask you for that. Really? Okay. Well, my script says to ask you if you know, so I guess that takes care of that. Um, so the Panopticon is, a, is, an, is, a, is an actual architectural design and concept for building a prison. And it consists of a ring-shaped building. It's a circle. So you have a ring-shaped building and it's just filled, absolutely, ex- absolutely chock full of cells. And every cell has a wall on the inside and the outside of the ring. And there's a, there's a window on each. So light from the outside can pass through the cell and shine inward. At the center, and, and, and it's a ring-shaped building, so obviously there's like a big circular courtyard, courtyard in the middle of it. And at the center of that courtyard is a guard tower. And what's important about the guard tower is that from the guard tower, because of how everything is designed, you can see at any time into any of the cells you wish but the people in the cells can't tell that you are looking at them in particular they can't even tell if someone is in the tower at all they just have to assume that they always might be watched
1: this sounds like some 1984 shit (laughs)
0: there there are um yeah i mean there's, there's 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 elements of the panoptic society in 1984 absolutely the idea of the Panopticon uh, comes directly from Jeremy Bentham, uh, and so it it does predate 1984 by quite a while. Uh, But yes, the idea that... 1984 is almost this this more perfect version of it, where where it's not that Big Brother might be watching you at any time, but that you can actually be sure for a fact that Big Brother is always watching you. And that's almost like this perfect version of the um, disciplinary society that we just could never do and so we kind of have to do this instead
1: this is just depressing this is de- this is a depressing episode Foucault but... is
0: a little bit depressing that's that's true he was a pretty depressing guy actually he um he like attempted suicide um I don't actually know how many times but quite a few times um throughout his life and he was like very into the idea of suicide as a concept um for much of his life
1: and, what an odd fixation
0: yeah, well, you know, he was – it kind of sucks being gay in France in the 1940s for obvious reasons.
1: Oh, of course. I should have just introduced him to Alan Turing. and They could have been a gay power couple. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, so – You can cut that. The, That's fine. No, 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 no. We won't cut it. That's okay. The fans <laughs> need to hear. So what the Panopticon as a general principle of control does at its core – is to turn a mass of prisoners into individuals because they're all in separate cells. They can't see each other. They can't organize. They can only be seen alone. And at the same time, you separate the exercise of power from the individual as much as possible. You can't, uh, you know, the person in the tower can't help but remain hidden. He can't help but see at least some of what happens. And even when he chooses not to personally, the ones under observation can't help but assume that they might at least be seen anyway. It reminds me kind of of how we talk about police today, how even if a cop is strictly anti-racist himself, that a person of color can't know for sure and out of self-preservation must always act as if a cop might at least might be racist because the risks of not doing so are too great. And this way you end up with a population that's always under the control of racism, regardless of the beliefs of the individuals who police them. In the same way, the constant threat of surveillance makes actual surveillance less necessary to maintain your control. Though, just as with racism in policing, you do have to have a decent amount of actual surveillance to keep the threat credible. But I also think it's really interesting how individualism plays into this, because we have this idea in the States that individualism always means more freedom, and that by putting us into groups, the government exercises more power over us than than if it viewed us as individuals. And Foucault kind of turns that on its head and says, actually, if the state can only separate the population into two large groups, then the difference between those groups is your one point of control. Whereas if you separate the population into 300 million individuals, that's 300 million potential points of control, 300 million potential deviations from the norm or types of deviations. So that's kind of interesting to think about, I think. Now, let's not beat around the bush. This is not just a model of an actual prison that you could build. This is how we do everything. This is how we do factories and workplaces, schools, hospitals. We live in a disciplinary society. The fundamental purpose of these disciplinary systems is the same as the fundamental purpose of the wider effort to reform the justice system in the revolutionary era, to protect property, to promote the accumulation of capital. Disciplinary systems are the sneaky undertow that elevate the bourgeoisie to the status of ruling class in the face of a legal code that's superficially equal for all. The norms that are enforced by our disciplinary structures turn proletarian bodies or revolutionary bodies into docile and productive ones anywhere they go, anywhere they exist for an extended period of time. I feel but like finish yeah? Sorry. No, no, go.
1: No, no, this this is this is just like an aside not to be go included. Ahead. But like I feel like that's 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 I, I I don't like like half of these things. I like I like read them or like hear you say them and read them, and then, like I don't know what to say other than I one hundred percent, one hundred percent agree. That's a really interesting thought, but I have nothing
0: to add to it. Yeah, I I think you're really gonna like this last bit because honestly, it it it's a little bit separated from like the real world. We we are kind of at one or two cules, and what and is a cule? So <laughs> a cule. Let one cule represent a degree of abstraction from the reality of a situation. Fucking Jesus. Okay. Um but um I I think that in this last section, so that what we basically went over was parts 1 through 3, torture, punishment, discipline. Part 4 is prisons and I think you're really going to like this part because this is where we really bring it home, really bring it back to reality. So, to finish this off, let's just dig a bit deeper into prisons. As I was explaining discipline and punish to my friend, and I got to the point where I talked about how prison had absorbed the whole system of criminal justice, she asked me, did it work? And that was kind of a funny question. I didn't even expect her to ask a question like that. And the answer is yes and no. Prison as a concept has the stated goal of reducing crime. And from its outset, prison was an abject failure in this regard. According to Foucault, The transition to a prison-based penal system did not correlate with any reduction in crime rates, and rates of recidivism, or the tendency for former prisoners to commit new crimes after being released, actually went up. And this was, you know, no secret, so why did prison as a method of criminal punishment persist? Quoting Foucault directly once again, One would be forced to suppose that the prison, and no doubt punishment in general, is not intended to eliminate offences but rather to distinguish them to distribute them to use them that it's not so much that they render docile those who are liable to transgress the law but that they tend to assimilate the transgression of the laws in a general tactics of subjection penalty would then appear to be a way of handling illegalities of laying down the limits of tolerance of giving free rein to some of putting pressure on others of excluding a particular section, of making another useful, of neutralizing certain individuals and of profiting from others. In short, penalty does not simply check illegalities. It differentiates them. It provides them with a general economy." In other words, the prison system extends its influence outside the walls of the prison by molding those who pass through it not into individuals who follow the law, but individuals who break it in a way that power can use.
1: Yeah, that's because there's, at least um, when Foucault was writing this, it was, there's some inherent things that were made illegal, you know, for example, homosexuality, right? Mm -hmm. That that can be, it, it provided an easy way for those people to be controlled. Like you have normally options to commit a crime or not commit a crime, but obviously there, that's, that's not the case. And I just fucking cut this part. I had something else. Are you? That I are you to gonna? Are
0: you gonna say something about how the way that our prison system works? It attempts to essentialize the criminal aspect of the people that pass through it.
1: <laughs> it's so leading.
0: Is that? I mean, is that what you're trying to say?
1: Well, I, I mean, I mean, once once it starts, once there starts to be a literal money transferring economy within it. I mean, there's reason to keep it going, and then it essentializes criminality to the society at all. I mean, these are these are profit-producing, you know, and institutions. They can't just be stopped. People at least least a large
0: number of them are, but they all serve capital, whether or not they're particularly for-profit prisons or not.
1: Yeah, sure, but like, and and also. It provides a way of not only controlling people, but just dealing with people that society, at least at the time, will find undesirable. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a schizophrenic, you know, in certain eras, you might just end up going to jail or being placed, you know, in, in solitary confinement.
0: So there's actually there's actually an interesting discussion that Foucault has on, like, how we defined madness throughout the years and how it kind of intermingles with the justice system. And, and so I actually want to circle back around to that once we get through the script, because I don't actually have a scripted section about that, but we should talk about that. Absolutely. Okay. So as I was saying, um, you know, prison system takes people who break the law in kind of transgressive ways and makes them break the law um, still, but in ways that are more useful. And the most notable use of these individuals is the perpetuation of the prison system itself. If you release people from prison who then go on to commit more crime, no one ever says maybe they shouldn't have gone to prison in the first place. They say. They never should have been let out. But further, what you see in these recidivists is the creation of a new class of individual in society, the delinquent. Whereas in the classical era, criminality was the limited domain of all members of society within certain limits, under the carceral system, as Foucault calls it, criminality is the near-exclusive domain of a relatively small group of individuals who the society can frame as hopelessly and essentially criminal.
1: I feel like that's the reason why when people get into, you know, um, prisons and that they have to survive in, like, especially in, um, on the West coast in like Arizona and California, um, they resign themselves just to being delinquents or felons and nothing more than that. So they try to, you know, work up the ladder with, within that system, you know, instead of thinking like maybe not, not, I don't want to say like I can be rehabilitated, but like I can assimilate back into society and
0: lose this label. Labels. <laughs> labels. <man. laughs> so paradoxically, uh, this delinquent group, which is defined by its defiance of the law, is actually the group on which the carceral system exerts its control most intensely. Like we said, delinquents are immensely useful for justifying the perpetuation of the carceral system, but their use is twofold. Delinquents do damage or steal some property, but they can't threaten big C capital, as a social force at least. The circumstances of their imprisonment and their material conditions following release push them into like more petty crimes that are liable to bring them back into prison well before they engage in any meaningful resistance to the carceral system at large. And in reading this last section of the book, I couldn't help but be constantly reminded of another book I've read. It's a fantastic book that, if you're interested in reading Discipline and Punish, I recommend absolutely as an immediate follow-up. And that book is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And The New Jim Crow does for the American prison system essentially what Marx's capital uh, did for the industrializing economies of the West. In particular, I noticed a nearly one-to-one parallel between Foucault's delinquent and Alexander's felon label, something that you were getting at just a second ago. The felon label refers to the state of having a felony conviction on your criminal record and all of the legal discrimination and institutional control that it justifies. Alexander urges us to consider the American criminal justice system, particularly in the context of the war on drugs, not as a means of reducing black criminality, but as a means of reordering and directing it so as to maintain the most intense possible degree of coercive control over America's black population in a legal system that remains mostly colorblind on paper. As such, it becomes just another in a lineage of systems, including the old Jim Crow and chattel slavery itself, designed to do basically the same thing. With this framing, it's much easier to explain why, in some parts of this country's cities, upwards of 80% of the black male population exists under some degree of direct control by the criminal justice system. With Foucault and a little Marxist analysis, we can pull that one step further back and understand that all these systems dating all the way back to the beginnings of colonialism are some means of capital accumulation. And that's... Yeah, Alex is doing a little mind blown hand thing. Um, Galaxy brain. That's what um, I had to write about Foucault, for the most part. Did you like it? Did you have fun? Yeah, bud. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I have almost no idea where to go from here. I thought that was
0: one thing that I didn't really, I couldn't really find a good place in the script to talk about, but that I did want to talk about is is that there's another book that. that discipline and punish kind of jogged my memory about, and that's the one that we discussed in episode four, uh, which is Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, and in particular, um, Mark Fisher kind of talks about the way in which ob- ob- bodies that like whose jobs is to observe what's going on at like a company or in an institution have kind of become this central part of how that company or institution functions and that oftentimes those responsibilities are actually put onto the workers there. So the example that Mark Fisher uses is a teacher who used to have someone come into the class and observe every now and then who now has been given the additional responsibilities of kind of observing and reporting on themselves And and how and how the the need for more and more data, more and more knowledge, more and more observation is so central Um, because fundamentally it's the whole the whole society is disciplinary. The whole society is about molding human behavior to the way that just like to to like the most narrow uh, range of acceptable behavior that aligns with the further accumulation of capital and the maintenance of the capitalist class. And that's obviously um very close to what Foucault talks about when he talks about disciplinary societies. It's actually pretty much exactly the same.
1: Yeah, and it always ends up aligning with the beliefs of you know wasps mm-hmm. somehow. All right. Do you have any <laughs> final thoughts before we conclude today?
0: I one I day? guess that's pretty much everything. This actually ended up being a, a, a quite a bit shorter than I expected it to be. I thought this was going to be one of our longer episodes. And um, it seems that we've kind of breezed through the scripted section and uh, with, with not much more to discuss right at the end.
1: But if you have questions, um, you as in the viewer, feel free to reach out on Twitter at WeReadTheoryPod. Um, we can also now be found on YouTube. Uh, this episode should be up by the time it is released on Anchor, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, all of the above but um
0: or wherever you get your podcast.
1: oh god i hated that so much anyway guys uh be gay do crime
0: all right hope you all enjoyed that episode love you all have a good one. <laughs>